0: Last December, we did a venture capital roundtable on this podcast about trends boosting venture backed ag tech in 2022 predictions. Well, Builders VC general partner Mark Blackwell says a lot has changed over the past nine months. I think as an
1: entrepreneur in this space, you have to think about growth, but you also have to think about in a world where there is an infinite amount of cheap capital, how you can build a profitable, long-standing business. And that is a dichotomy that's never been put into the playbook in the venture landscape. Because it always has been, you know, shoot for the stars, don't worry about net income, there's always going to be capital. And so those are tougher conversations in some boardrooms than others. And we're really
0: seeing the real grit of the entrepreneur around what it takes to do that. One thing that hasn't changed is the investor interest in financial technology or FinTech and the opportunities for where that intersects with agriculture. Within all
1: of our sectors, and I think you've had many individuals on this podcast thinking about the asymmetry of information and data and embedded FinTech related to that. And so we're trying to double click that on all the areas within AgTech that we think there's market opportunity. And in some cases, we're investing in companies. We also are incubating companies.
0: I talk about the changing venture capital landscape with Mark Blackwell on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. fellow ag nerds, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of The Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, before we dive into today's episode, I'd like to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is the engine of Canada's agriculture industry, Calgary, Alberta. Located in the heart of Alberta's best-growing land, Calgary has it all. With more than 22 facilities in Alberta playing a critical role in ag research and innovation, Calgary is a hub for precision agriculture and agricultural technology. The Calgary region has proximity to customers, abundant primary agricultural commodities, and a growing cluster of value-added processing capacity. That's why multinational agribusiness leaders call Calgary home. In Calgary, they're leading the agribusiness revolution, and you're welcome to join. Visit CalgaryAgBusiness.com to learn more. That's CalgaryAgBusiness.com. Thank you so much to Calgary Economic Development for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, so now to today's conversation with Mark Blackwell of Builders VC. Mark actually lives in Calgary, but Builders is a Silicon Valley-based venture fund that focuses on modernizing antiquated industries. So they focus not only in agriculture, but also in healthcare, industrials, real estate, and construction. They have a portfolio of over 60 companies across two funds now investing from seed to Series A. The team has a long history of investing in ag tech, even before they founded Builders, when they invested as part of Coastal Ventures in companies that you may have heard of, like Granular and Climate Corp, some pretty big Wins for the venture capital space there. Mark and I talk a lot about the current state of venture capital and what areas of ag tech he's most excited to invest in companies with bold visions and strategic plans. I'll warn you, this episode does get a little bit into the weeds when it comes to venture capital, and I am by no means an expert on this topic at all. But uh, if you're somewhat unfamiliar, here's a very quick and very basic and very general primer to help understand the venture capital world. Uh, Venture capitalists start and manage funds to invest in startup companies. They're backed by investors called limited partners or LPs that give them money to place these bets. When VCs have this money from their investors and they have not yet deployed them to startups, they call that money dry powder. And you'll hear dry powder come up in today's conversation. VCs do take a management fee from these investments, but the real money is made when a company exits. In other words, it is sold or goes public. And that's why we're going to talk about M&A activity, which is mergers and acquisitions, because it's very important to sort of set the market for how much these startups are worth, because that's eventually where the investors hope they're going Going to end up either that or going public, like I said. So, when companies in these VCs' portfolios exit, that is when the VC can return the fund or provide returns to their investors and, of course, to themselves. We also reference SPACs here at one point in the conversation, which could be a whole other podcast. Uh, But just so you know, that stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. And it's a vehicle that allows companies to go public that was super popular a year plus ago, but sort of fallen out of favor based on a number of factors that we won't go into here. And I don't fully understand myself, but not important. Just one acronym that will be brought up. I thought I would define for you. All right, hopefully that provides some context for this insightful conversation with Mark Blackwell. Mark is a general partner and leads the Canadian office at Builders. Previously, he was a product manager at SolarWinds, which he joined when they acquired GNS3 Technologies, where Mark had been the COO. And he also had a background in venture capital and investment banking before that. I'll drop you into the conversation here where Mark is talking about some of the big shifts he's seeing in the venture world and what that means for both founders and investors. you know, coming out of January,
1: 2022, 2021 was a banner year across every sector, every subcategory from both an M&A perspective, capital raised last year, you know, what continues to amaze me, you know, $290 billion of capital raised across 3000 funds in 2021, that still continues to sit on the sidelines. And so that that's like the framework to start with. Last year as well, the highest amount of liquidity, access to the public markets, valuations were all time highs. And so I think what we're doing now We've slowed down. And I think that's even coming through in the Q2 data. And there's just a recalibration. Investors like ourselves are trying to figure out getting back to the norm on valuation, figuring out the areas and sectors that we want to play in. Last year in 2021, you know, there was a decent amount of MA. And that really helps inform how we think about pricing. I'd say you know, you've had a lot of guests on on the podcast talking about particularly, I'd say that landmark in 2021 was the major equipment providers and the MA that happened there, whether it's Raven, Bear Flag, there was a lot of consolidation in some of those spaces. And there's a lot of companies coming up into that. And so generally speaking, you know, the data shows that investments have slowed down Q1, Q2. But I would say that's a real reflection of price discovery and valuation. And the best proxy, you, know, you had five big public companies go public last year through SPRAC transactions, App Harvest, Benson Hill, Ginkgo, Local Bounty, and, and Greenlight. All of those businesses are trading down between I check this morning, 55 and 72%. And so that is really just causing a bit of turmoil. And then you look at the general pub codes, Beyond Meats, and that is kind of just creating a fracture point in the venture ecosystem and ag tech around understanding how we price, how we think about the exit landscape, and that's a manifestation then of capital flow. So we've been patient and selective but I, I continue to be bullish. I think it's just, quite frankly, a realization for entrepreneurs around the recalibration on value. And that takes time to go from the public markets all the way down to Series A for founders to really recognize kind of the new world order that we're existing in, and also the goalposts of change on what investors like us are rewarding. And so that's a lot of boardroom
0: conversations we're having now. Okay. Well, I don't know how much of your boardroom conversations you want to share with all of us, but I'm really interested in that. How, how are the goalposts changing? We have a lot of uh, ag entrepreneurs that listen to this, and I think they would be really interested to know you know, what metrics are, are trending up and what metrics are trending down. So, I mean,
1: without casting a broad net, I, I think the synthesis of 2021 was kind of growth. And that manifested in itself in the boardroom of saying kind of growth at all cost in a world where there was infinite amount of cheap capital, infinite amount of cheap debt. And so companies had infinite amount of options to raise money and competing term sheets in many cases. And so that drove exuberance and that drove the cost of talent and labor up. And so companies spent a ton of money, not necessarily realizing that things could correct. The story could come to a close. And that I think for us, particularly in the egg space, I have not seen more pitch decks in the past two quarters of entrepreneurs talking about how to get path to profitability. I've rarely heard the word profitability in the venture world, which is a part cause on us as VCs around what we rewarded. But I think there's a general recalibration that's happening now to be focused and laser focused around what it takes to get to even contribution margin positive and unit economic positive. And so those are the conversations we have. Tough. For a lot of companies that you know never really had on the roadmap to think about growing a profitable business. And it sounds crazy that we're saying these things, but I think that the market typically rewarded growth. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's really settling in around the fact that there is an infinite amount of capital that's willing to pay 100 times forward-looking revenue multiples. And we have to really think about showcasing a pathway. And I think as an entrepreneur in this space, you have to think about growth, but you also have to think about in a world where there is an infinite amount of cheap capital, how you can build a profitable, long-standing business. And that is a dichotomy that's never been put into the playbook in the venture landscape, because it always has been, you know, shoot for the stars, don't worry about net income. There's always going to be capital. And so those are tougher conversations in some boardrooms than others. And we're really seeing the real grit of the entrepreneur around what it takes to do that, because in many cases. You know, it's significantly reducing the size of the organization. It's significantly reducing the product roadmap strategy and focus and an element of focus back into the business plan. So I actually think it was needed, but it's a harsher reality for some. And the manifestation of that is you're seeing some of these fire sale-like opportunities, companies that raised boatloads of cash. And I won't name them here, but there are a lot of companies that raised a ton of money in 2019 that have now been sold for kind of cents on the dollar and, you know... We have this aging AR report at Builders looking at not the walking dead, but those companies that maybe haven't raised in 24, 48 months that are really fundamentally good businesses if they're right size for the market opportunity. And so we're really excited about that. You know, Engaging entrepreneurs that may be in a not a quasi distress situation, but thinking about, okay, we really need to think about the revision of the business plan, how we think about spend. I mean, you look at the best vintage funds in venture in history, 1999, 2000. 2007, 2008 are the best vintage performing funds in venture. Those are the biggest downturns, and those are the biggest opportunities for recalibration. And so that's what gets me excited. We have 250 million dollars of dry powder. That's what gets us excited about the next couple of years.
0: And in those fire sale situations, what does that look like? I mean, it, does it look like a major down round at a more appropriate valuation with a new business plan in place? Does it look like you know one of your current portfolio companies acquiring them? I'm sure the structure could take different forms, but I'm curious how that might play out.
1: So I would say the tools in the toolbox, everyone's kind of quaint, you know, flat rounds are the new up rounds. What we're seeing in the toolbox is companies opening up previous rounds at same valuations they closed last year. Uh, we're seeing an immense amount of appetite for insider rounds, just shoring up the balance sheet, working with management to get to 24, 36 months of runway. And in the third scenario where let's say there's an immense amount of investor fatigue, you know, companies are putting themselves up for sale, and opportunistically, you're seeing even private companies. You look at the consolidation and roll-ups that Bushel has undertaken. You know, Bushel acquired FarmLogs. They acquired Grainbridge, which was a spinout. You look at ENU that's acquired Cropwalk and Artemis. Not that those were fire sale like situations, but I think for some of those businesses like FarmLogs, what did that look like at scale? And it made more sense for investors to say you know, I'd rather have a piece of bushel and sell the company for all stock. So there's a lot of, I would say, tools in the toolbox that we are thinking about as we think about the next kind of frontier of companies and our portfolio and new investments.
0: And obviously, you know, TAM is always going to be important, but in this environment of less prioritization on just pure growth does tam become slightly less important and some of these niche opportunities or i should say more niche opportunities become somewhat more venture interesting
1: yeah that's a i mean that's a fantastic question i would say the tam in in whatever way you want to slice and dice the agriculture space is still massive and i think the subset of that is, you know, building great fundamental businesses, but then being realistic around what exit opportunities look like. And so we have a number of companies that that we're looking at right now that the TAM as a portion of the, let's say, the multi-trillion dollar market opportunity in the US and agriculture is smaller, but they can have much more dominant market share. But we're also just calibrating our internal expectations around then, what does an exit look like? And I think this is always, you know, the, the, the power of VC, it's all power law theory. Like, Thou shall have a company that returns the fund. That's the only way our mindset thinks. But I would say we're rethinking about general portfolio construction to say, maybe it's okay to have some you know, second base, third base hits. Understanding that there's higher degree of certainty, a real tech differentiation, but maybe isn't a $8 billion market outcome. And so I think everyone's level setting their expectations around underwriting. And that manifests itself through, you know, entry ownership and valuation. And we're being very patient to see valuations come down, but it's taking a lot more time to cascade through. And there's a lot of, you know, high resolution data, even that Cooley Go puts out once a quarter around the average valuation trends by stage. Yes, it's anecdotally cooled off, but we're still seeing companies out there in some sectors getting valued at hundred times revenue multiples. There's still craziness out there.
0: It's just less and less so. Right. Well, thank you for indulging me on these kind of VC insider type questions because I think that stuff is fascinating and it's it's a very dynamic industry right now, so it's it's pretty cool. But I do want to talk about, you know, the way you're looking at agtech specifically. We started off by talking about uh, Granular and Climate Corp, you know, two companies that rode this wave of digitization in agriculture at the farm level, you know, a decade plus ago. What are you seeing now? You know, what's what's the next tidal wave that's going to produce the future billion dollar exits uh, in ag? Obviously, that is the billion dollar question, quite literally. But what are you seeing that you know that is going to carry companies that you're going to be investing in into that type of spotlight in the future?
1: Yeah, so I would say um, thematically, and, and you've had some individuals on the podcast before. So, so ag fintech is is one big category that we can kind of double click on on, on areas of interest. But another is just this, this massive boom on alternative asset classes going mainstream. And what I mean by that, you know, too particular, I don't know if you've had Artem or Carter on the podcast, but there is just this like massive amount of retail institutional demand, particularly looking for places to put cash. And we went really deep. If you look at like the general alternative asset class market in venture, you're looking at everything from Pokemon cards to sneakers this like democratization of access. And I think there has been a number of companies that have come out of you know, Carter and Artem's and even Corbett's team at Tillable on like what the future of ownership looks like and access in the institutionalization of farmland. There is a huge tectonic plate that's moving and thinking about capital and access flow into the farmland asset class. And that will get, that's what gets us super excited. And so you look at just like, we we have prop tech as one of the big buckets in our portfolio, which is a fantastic analogy of just the differences in institutional ownership in commercial real estate versus the institutional ownership in farmland and the dynamics that are changing due to a number of kind of like macro secular trends. But there is just an immense amount of appetite and propensity to get access to farmland. And a lot of different companies are figuring out new ways to do that. So I would say. My partners think I'm obsessed. I mean, I am, I am obsessed. I love Carter, I love Artem, the tillable team. And then there's a bunch of companies that are emerging on the seed stage side that are trying to figure out different ways to finance, help farmers grow lease new leasing structures. You know, you got Farm VC, Steward, the team at FarmOp Capital, and Fractal thinking about different ways to finance farmland and finance growth. And so that is an area that we are relatively obsessed with and spending a lot of time thinking about.
0: Great, yeah, yeah, and, and for those listening, you just talk about Carter at AcreTrader, and I can put links in the show notes for these, and then and then Artem at Farm Together. And I guess Artem actually hasn't been on, but David on their executive team has, has been on the podcast before. But yeah, no, I I think that's a big one. And actually, we just had a consultant on talking about uh, institutional investment in farmland recently, and I I think that's an interesting one because am I wrong that in Canada it's different? Like, is is it more restricted on institutional investment in farmland in Canada? Is that right? yeah, it is. And it's like
1: province to province, quite frankly. I think there's continues to be an immense amount of interest, but like it's pretty much locked up inside of you know private equity funds, publicly traded REITs. And so you think about the asset class for retail investors, there's not a lot of options in Canada or the u s, which I think you know Carter and Artem and others are starting to unlock. And so we're having conversations with both of them about you know Canada. Carter just, I think made their first investment over in Australia. And so there are different like geopolitical and just regulatory components to thinking about how to unlock the asset class. But like I looked the other day, so I think Carter's up to 86 farms, Farm Together team past 36. Like there's a supply demand imbalance. Like both of those platforms have so much demand to invest that I think what's going to happen and be interesting to watch those platforms over time to see one how the assets perform. Across the board, we all know how difficult it is to manage physical assets. It's not like sneakers at StockX that you put inside of a backhaul. You actually have to manage these physical assets. So both of those companies have grown very quick, but all eyes are on both of them to see you know are the cash yields that they represented to the investors going to be what they are, and the entry level ownership or entry level price they paid for these assets are going to they going to appreciate over time. Now there's a lot of interest, but all eyes are on both of those two. To see long-term how they perform.
0: That's really interesting. Cool. Well, what else? What else is kind of top of your mind when it comes to these massive trends that are uh, impacting the future of ag? I mean, I think
1: within all of our sectors, and I think you've had many individuals on this podcast thinking about the asymmetry of information and data and embedded fintech related to that. And so alternative asset class is a derivative of fintech in my view, because They're basically a supply-demand mix, trying to find investors that want access to the asset class, and then some proprietary secret sauce to finding the land and managing the land. We're trying to double-click that on all the areas within tech that we think there's market opportunity. And in some cases, we're investing in companies. We also are incubating companies that we just can't find a market opportunity in. And so we have a company in the portfolio in Fund One called StockArt that's thinking about the poultry cattle insurance market. And they're out right now raising a series A. And so there are market inefficiencies in Canada and the US to just think about general underwriting philosophy, how we get access to proprietary data to feed an underwriting model. And so within like animal equipment, grain, dairy, land, retail, we're spending a lot of time really double clicking on those categories to figure out you know, what is the lending, insurance, open finance services where there's just general inefficiencies and new business models to come to play. And so the broad category of alternative assets, but the second category of embedded fintech and insurance is really quite interesting where we're spending time.
0: Yeah. Maybe talk about StockGuard a little bit more because I I saw them on your website and I thought it kind of stood out to me. I had recognized a lot of the other names. I hadn't recognized that name, but the, the website says an insurance company that leverage epidemiological expertise and data in order to underwrite livestock production risk. So it's basically collecting more data on the animals themselves in order to underwrite the risk. Is that right? That's absolutely right.
1: Yeah. And, you know, access to that data has been really hard to find. You know, you got general actuarial models. And so the company is taking a number of, you know, off the shelf, but also proprietary data sets to figure out, you know, how do we build better models, whether it's avian influenza and try and figure out a way to better underwrite risk down to the kind of the individual animal level. And so, you know, they've really spent a ton of time trying to collect the right information, build the better mousetrap and underwriting algorithm to then figure out how we underwrite. So I think they've just actually issued their first $2 million of policy. And so we're now spending a lot of time in the field collecting data and then really calibrating the models to see how they work in real time.
0: Okay, cool. Well, I I love examples of fintech because honestly, I get a little bit exhausted with people using the word fintech and not defining it, you know, almost like blockchain or something like that, where it's just like, okay, well, just tell me what you mean. But I think that's a great example of insurance where there's perhaps some efficiencies that could be had if you have more intimate data, I guess I'll call it, about the animals themselves.
1: Yeah. And I mean, we've got another analogy in the portfolio in the in the construction pace with a company called Foresight and Ultimately, like you can build a better mousetrap, but access to proprietary data. So this company started as a tool called SafeSight. I think they had a thousand plus customers collecting information around safety compliance in industrial construction and actually agriculture, mostly focused on worker comp. And so the idea was, you know, if we can help a company and create an index and a score to delineate between, you know, my and your agriculture operation and my and your construction company around like safety compliance and incidents then we can build a really effective actuarial model and pricing as long as we have compliance and buy-in from the company. And so we invested in this company two and a half years ago. They most recently passed $50, $60 million of gross written premium. And you know that's important top line, but what's more important is like how we reduce loss ratios. And so in the agriculture space, if you've got better compliance and better buy-in on general work safety... Your likelihood of having incidents on the work comp side is going to be significantly reduced. Therefore, we have a better pricing model. And so there's instances like that that we're seeing across, obviously with StockGuard and Livestock, Foresight in the worker comp category, which has a good chunk of customers in the agriculture space that are just figuring out how to use better data to price, and then also help end customers reduce premiums. And so that's a real kind of manifestation of like, you know, using data to better build a better pricing algorithm.
0: Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And I could I could see the parallels to lending as well. It's ways to assess risk that uh, are with modern times, because we have access to this data that's going to be a lot more reliable than just whatever we've been using in the past century, which doesn't seem to have changed very much. No, it hasn't. It's just, I guess it's the, the biggest challenge.
1: We have another company in stealth right now that's looking at the dairy lending space. And so we'll come out of stealth soon, but trying to figure out the general inefficiencies of how lending happens in dairy, you know, based on the asset value of the land versus the individual cow level data. If we had individual cow level data and individual cow yields and animal health information, could we underwrite at the cow level? And I think just the way that underwriting models are built in that space, it's on this aggregate land value as companies think about expanding. Egg banks haven't necessarily like innovated around the edges, around how to use those data. Now, getting access to that data is the hard part and then feeding that into a model. But I think there's just general inefficiencies and general market dominance by the big players in the US and Canada that there's just ripe for opportunity. And so this may be a path to nowhere, but we have conviction that I think that if we can get this information on dairy, then there's opportunities for us to think about a broader wedge strategy there. So more to come on that in the
0: coming weeks. Oh, that's great! You know, it definitely reminds me of of another one of your portfolio companies, which is Soma Detect, and their ability to provide that that level of data. Very interesting. Yeah, and you had Bethany, I think, on the on the podcast last year. Yeah, yeah, she's wonderful. So, no, that's very, very cool. This is this is gold. I'm really, really enjoying this. I appreciate you you sharing all this because it, it's bringing a lot to light. One question I have as a venture capitalist, you sort of have to think about not necessarily what the market is demanding today, but what it will be demanding in the future. And so in a lot of that, it has to do with incentives like, you know, regen ag, take for example, right now, small sub segment of the farmers, in my opinion, seem to be really driven to embrace regen ag. And so if you're going to invest in something like regen ag, you have to believe that the incentives will be there in the future in order for them to do so. You know, how do you do that? Because to me, Sometimes I look at venture capital and I see people trying to push a future that, that they want to have happen on customers that don't necessarily want that future. And so, you know, how do you kind of reconcile those uh, future incentives and kind of try to project out when they might manifest themselves?
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I mean, in some cases, there's a direct attributable immediate ROI. And I think in some of the cases, you take Bearfly against some of their comps. You know, it's an easy translation to think about, like the human cost element. We have another company in the mining category called Safi, that is basically kind of bare play against Sabanto for mining and construction. Well, in the mining space, three hundred fifty thousand dollars per truck per year in an operator that you're eliminating. To a mine operator, you're dealing with a disparate blue collar labor in remote applications, and this migrationary talent of trying to find people is really hard. So. That is like on day one, we can go into a farmer or a mine site and say, look, we can eliminate this cost from you. And the farmer can relatively understand that. What we're finding in the fintech broad space is like, it's very relational driven. And this is a very generalized statement, but like Mark as farmer has had a relationship with Bill at Bank or any one of his providers for the past 20 years. He's banked Mark. He's provided credit. He's provided me insurance. He provided me equipment financing. And so you come in with this new shiny solution that you can demonstrate potentially the fact that they can have savings in their premiums or potentially a reduction in the interest rate on how they think about lending. And what was most interesting to us in the field is sometimes that actually doesn't matter because the embedded ingrained relationships in some of these regional egg banks is I actually trust this individual. I've banked with him for 20 years. And this new shiny object that you're asking me to put tags and collars on my cows and collecting all this information and giving me all my yield information to give me a better interest rate on my lending product, that is tough. And I think the realization of some entrepreneurs, that's in great, that's in all of our industrial sectors that we play in. But in, in agriculture, you know this. I mean, you've seen, you've had entrepreneurs come in that like that translation piece is super important and for some of these fintech like solutions we have another company called farmers risk you know the translation of how to think about hedging proper hedging and the translation of the roi to the farmer just takes time and the hand to hand combat nature of some of these things is really hard now indigo you know paying forward on some of the prices and giving farmers like a direct roi on carbon is interesting but like i still haven't seen the right mousetrap and you've had many of these individuals on the podcast around like the price of carbon and regen egg and what it would take to convert and the financial incentive and how that's aligned correctly. That's a big question mark for me. I haven't figured that one out.
0: Hmm. Uh, Well, this is getting a little bit back to our earlier conversation, but it's where my mind went. You know, when do you decide to incubate a company versus kind of keep looking? (laughs) How does that decision go? And what does that look like from a, a structural standpoint?
1: I would say we're very much like, um, I mean, venture funds are weird, right? You're either top down, you see everything that comes in. We look at 2000 deals, we make investments in six or your bottoms up, like very thesis driven and thematic driven. I'd say we're hybrid of both, but where we do spend time thinking about like market inefficiencies, And this is just through a manifestation of our portfolio companies being like, Hey, there's this huge gap we see in the market. And so we'll usually do like a massive scan. And so we did that with FinTech. We looked at you know, land general, livestock, and equipment. We go out there and scan and meet every single company in that space. We come up with a general thesis that we have. And in some cases, there's just no company, but we have amazing entrepreneurs. I mean, we've been investing collectively as a team for 40 years. So we have entrepreneurs that are maybe off the bench that came from climate that are looking for like an opportunity to be a CEO. And so we bring them in as an entrepreneur in residence. Christian was one of those individuals at Omer's, uh, was amazing to kind of follow his journey. And it's like six months of discovery. And maybe it doesn't come to anything, but we usually go like bottoms up. And so it's like, let's find every single company that touches egg equipment lending. There's not a lot of them, one big one. And if we can't find that, then let's go build it. And we have the infrastructure, the team, the support. And we have this group called B2 at Builders. Previous operators, we have a full-time psychologist. We have a full-time executive coach around thinking about like the formation stages of what it takes to build good teams. And so we will then choose to incubate. But that is really like a thematic bottoms up process after we've scanned and met every single company in the space.
0: Yeah. Well, what what about exits in ag tech relative to other industries? You know, it feels like from somebody who's never worked in any other industry that we're very concentrated in the type of corporates that are going to acquire companies. You know, on the animal health side, you've got Merck, Golenko, Zoetis, and, and you know, on the input side, you, you, you know, you've got uh, Bayer and Syngenta, and, and just like it seems like we're very concentrated when it comes to potential acquirers. Is that true relative to the, some of the other industries you work with, or is that just the way it feels? No. I mean, I think that um,
1: it is relatively true. I would say you know, in 2021, there's what, 50 tech M&A transactions in 2021, but heavily dominated by DRCNH and Agco. But you know, would any of us guess in a pretty significant way that the fastest growing acquire in the space would have been Telus, traditional telecom communication company up in Canada? Uh, three years ago, if you would have placed chips to say that Telus would now have seven or eight bolt-on acquisitions in the agriculture space, you would have you would have been crazy. And so I think that like that is starting to emerge. We are starting to see non-traditional, straight down the fairway. Acquires of some of these businesses looking at opportunities to leverage their access. And so you, know, you look at TELUS as a non-conventional egg investor that have built a really good powerhouse team. They took the playbook that they did in healthcare and they rolled it into egg. And so those emerging players outside of the traditional OEM manufacturer equipment providers, there's still going to be massive consolidation, I believe, in that space. You look at farm-wise, burden, carbon, Egg there's some amazing innovation, and they all are heavily competing with each other on a race on innovation. Deer has been far ahead of the curve, but I imagine there's going to be a continued consolidation in that space. There's going to be a couple winners that come out of that. The less acquisitive, I mean, you saw FMC recently make an acquisition of Biosphere, $200 million acquisition. And so, you know, the egg input providers and agrochemical companies are coming back out again. And so I would say it is refined to like 10 core names that we track. Trimble being another one that's going deep in agriculture and investing. Um, and then you're getting late stage companies that are growing to scale. You have Simios and Bushel that are private companies that are rolling up earlier companies in this space, And that's just natural consolidation. And Inu. So I would imagine over time, there's going to be the bread and butter straight down the fairway companies that have acquired companies traditionally. The unconventional players, maybe the broader telecommunication strategy of companies like Telus. And then as companies reach scale, you have a new acquirer pool. You even look at the SPACs that went public. I mean, App Harvest, Benson Hill, Ginkgo, Local Bounty, Greenlight, they now have a currency to buy. And you've seen all of them go to market and make acquisitions by the currency of their stock. So, net, net, like the pool is broadening of natural acquirers as we think about like, Exit scenario planning. Where does a company like Soma, or where does a company like any one of our portfolio companies land? That pool is broadening, but still heavily concentrated.
0: Man, phenomenal answer. So I re- I really appreciate that insight because yeah, when you put it that way, you could see it. And also, harkening back to what you were talking about with these platforms like Farm Together and Acre Trader, I could definitely see outside players being interested in platforms like that. You know, banks, insurance companies, uh, maybe even hedge funds. Those types of players as well.
1: And I mean, the 800-pound gorilla, like in construction, it was Procore. So Procore went public last year. They're the new 800-pound gorilla in the construction tech category. They've been gobbling everything up. I am just waiting for FBN to go public because I would imagine across all the verticals inside of that business, and, and we've seen this anecdotally with a number of companies that we've looked at, that they are also going to be an emerging player that will try and heavily consolidate certain sectors. Companies that I would have never thought fit in the FBN portfolio, um, some of which we've actually mentioned today, have been companies that we've heard through the grapevine that FBNs tried to buy, and so everyone's waiting, like anxiously waiting for FBN to hit the public markets and see how it reacts. But I analogize FBN to Procore and construction, and we're going to see, I would say, an immense amount of consolidation and immense amount of competition for acquisitions once FBN goes out. So I mean, that's what gets us excited, like. Not that you can bake on FBN rolling up the space, but they are going to be a new emerging 800-pound gorilla once they hit the public markets, or even before, to be a natural acquire for some of these companies.
0: Very interesting. Wow. Well, I, I've already asked some variation of this question, so if you don't have anything that you want to add, that's fine too. Which is, you know, what areas as as a VC in ag tech are you wanting to see more founders, wanting to see more companies? Uh, you're incubating some. Um, already, but uh, is there anything you'd like to speak to? That's like, where are the companies that are doing this or attacking this problem in some unique and interesting way? I mean, I imagine fintech is is probably, you know, the broad category. But anything else you'd want to add to that?
1: You know, I think that
0: you know, it's funny. I was listening to Jeanette's
1: comments on kind of broader marketplaces and the inefficiencies that exist, and some of her experience um, with her previous company but you know there's companies out there like tractor zoom or we have a company in the industrial equipment rental space called dozer that i think that like the broader digitization in like payments and infrastructure and lending even auction houses like you know tractor zoom is a fantastic example that's taken like a very brick and mortar approach to think about like auction houses and the digitization of sell of farmland equipment there is something that's just like ripe for disruption and so we're looking at a bunch of really interesting marketplace opportunities that take true advantage of the asymmetry of information that's available in pricing farm equipment. And so marketplaces. And then the third thing I would say that we're spending a lot of time on is thinking about like vertical labor marketplaces. And we saw during the pandemic, even just with the ability of migrant workers to come into the U.S. on how hard it's been to recruit, retain, keep good talent. This is embedded in nursing. This is embedded in construction. This is embedded in agriculture on how we train, maintain, and recruit temporary labor, blue-collar labor. And so there's a bunch of vertical labor marketplaces that get us excited. That egg is the next frontier of that. And so I would say marketplaces and labor, how we figure out the labor equation in addition to fintech on where I'm spending the majority of my time.
0: Man. This has been so good, Mark. I really appreciate this because I feel like my head's been spinning and thrown off my game as an interviewer. But every answer you're giving is gold, so thank you. A- anything else though that you'd like to add, either double down on that we've already talked about, or something new you'd like to bring up before I let you get on with your day?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, the selfish plug for for Canada. I mean, I think that you see the work that Farm Credit Canada is doing. I think they've now made seven investments in venture funds. They're trying to get access to capital. I think there's the right tech ecosystem up here. And in Calgary, I mean, SVG Thrive opened up their Canadian headquarters in Calgary. So there's a lot of good movement and like geographical expansion. It's aligned with our sectors. There's great previous entrepreneurs. So yeah, I'll be my only like selfish plug
0: as a Canadian, I'd say. I will make sure that that makes it in there. Thank you very much, Mark. I really appreciate this. Awesome. Thanks, man. Have a great day. Well, thank you once again to Mark Blackwell for being on the show. Go learn more about what they're doing over at builders.vc. Link, of course, will be in the show notes. And special thank you to friend of the show, regular guest co-host Jeanette Barnard for making the introduction to Mark. I'm off the grid this week on my annual trip with No Cell Reception in Wyoming. But I always welcome feedback on these episodes via Twitter. I'm at Tim Hamrich or email Tim at aggrad.com. Just be patient with me on responses as I come back from summer vacation. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.